I guess the question is, how much do you want to drive the discussion, or do you want me to just ramble? <laughs> <laughs> And welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Prescription Sound. Hope you're doing well. Now, some of you out there might be excited for a time where you can exist as just a brain in a jar plugged into a virtual dream world where anything is possible. Lucky for you, this episode, we are talking all things augmented and virtual reality. And my guest today is not simply a brain in a jar, but a man known as Professor Arthur Olson, who runs the Molecular Graphics Lab at Scripps under the umbrella of Structural and Computational Biology. So listen as we talk about the current and future utility of these technologies, and specifically their applications in science. Professor Olson, thank you for joining me. So before we get into the nifty tools that you guys are using in your lab, I was wondering if you could just give an overview first of what your lab at Scripps is focused on. Yeah, I I started my lab almost 36 years ago now, And I called it the Molecular Graphics Lab because graphics was a new technology for visualizing and interacting with molecular structures. The modeling is more than just visualization. It's modeling the physics and the chemistry of interactions. The other aspect is the application. In other words, we think that developing tools in the absence of using them is probably not a good strategy. So so we devote a lot of our efforts to to modeling particular systems. Kind of my own background and interests tend toward virology, structures of viruses and so forth. And the focus of the center itself, it has to do with the evolution of drug resistance. We're looking at interactions of HIV proteins, both with themselves and interactions with host molecules and, and assemblies. So it was very interesting what you said about the early days initially when you were starting to develop uh, collaborations with different fields. How did that take place? Did you have the, some of this modeling technology in place and you were looking at how it could be applied to um, different areas of research or were people in that area of research kind of coming to you and saying, can you help us model these interactions? And Yeah, I would say it's, it's somewhat a combination of both. You know, how do, you, how do people know what you do? Well, you, you give talks and you write papers. And so the focus of these things, in my case, has been a lot on, let's say, viruses. So that's kind of a natural evolution. But on the other hand, computational scientists can be very opportunistic. We can pivot on a dime. We don't have expensive reagents and equipment uh, that are focused on a particular problem. And so... You know, if there's a, an interesting problem that uh, somebody comes to us with, we're, you know, we can collaborate, and we do collaborate with a lot of people. That's been one of the things about scripts, I think, is uh, kind of a highlight in my career, is that it's always been incredibly collaborative, and it's helped uh, the reputation of scripts, and it's helped the individual scientists. So you mentioned uh, virology and the focus on HIV. Um, so maybe if we move into how you guys are using this 3D printing technology in the lab to understand HIV and what some of the advantages would be of using this kind of method. It's a good question. Uh, from my perspective, the most important part of the 3D modeling to this, to this point has been 
in communicating with other scientists, communicating with collaborators who uh, may not be structuralists. You know, you can sit in front of a computer graphics screen with somebody, uh, but it's not the same experience if you're sharing a model, a physical model. Yeah, it is amazing how when we spoke about the versatility of graphical technology before we started the recording, it's almost funny how we've gone from that back to the physical model because the, right. we found the limitations. Yeah, when you adopt a new technology, you usually leave something behind. And, you know, that's, that's what, why I went back. I started with physical models back in the late 60s and early 70s. And, and, you know, they were cumbersome, but there was something about the physicality of them that you miss uh, when you go to a, a virtual model. So it, it actually gave me a very different view. I'll quote somebody. Uh, one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, Marvin Minsky, said, if you know something in only one way, you don't really know it. You know, the, the more ways you look at the same thing, the deeper your knowledge is about things. And that's why I think that there's, there's some power in, in physical models. So what are these 3D printed molecules made out of? What is the actual material that is going into the printer? So there are a dozen or two dozen different types of 3D printers. And one of the things that distinguishes them is the materials. And it ranges, the ones, these kind of more flexible models are made out of plastic. So just a, a thin thread of plastic is put down layer by layer. Another printer that I have is a full color printer. One of the problems with, with the plastic printers are that uh, they're monochromatic. There's some other, other printers that are resin-based, and those, those are starting to be full color, but the one I have is, is a powder-based system. So it lays down layers of essentially gypsum, right. plaster of Paris, thin layers. Color, head, color print heads come over and print color binder for that layer of the model. Uh, so these are made, they look more like ceramics. They tend not to be absolutely smooth. So there's a lot, I mean, you can get things printed in silver and titanium or something these days. You get what you pay for. I mean, if you buy a consumer 3D printer from Costco or something, it's going to be pretty limited in what you can do. Sure. So people can't necessarily run out to Costco and start building their own HIV well, they, molecules? They, they could. Um, a lot of it depends on the representation. Uh, so if you want to build, let's say, a molecular surface of a, of a pretty globular protein without any big holes or anything in it, um, that you could do with a Costco printer. It might be, have kind of a coarse surface because the resolution of the printing is also a factor. And if you want to have a color model, then you have to pay. You, you're out of luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I first came to Scripps, the first color uh, computer graphics uh, stations had just come out. And so I wanted to order one of those. But people thought color color is just a, f a frill. The decade before, they went from black and white TV to color TV. And, oh, that's, that's really, you know, makes things look more realistic. But nobody thought that it was anything more than some aesthetic pleasure. They didn't realize that color conveys information. It's another information channel. You know, having a... 3D model of a surface of a protein is one thing if it's all one color and if it's colored by electrostatics or some other characteristic it's more information for you to take in and to observe 
Being able to combine 3D printed models with augmented reality computational methods is one of the coolest things about Professor Olsen's lab and is an integral part of how they understand the docking of proteins and other small molecules. Physical models can do certain things and they have certain perceptual capabilities and so forth, but there's a lot more information that you can't embed that you do have that you may want to augment. So you'd like to be able to use the model to somehow integrate information, some of which may be superimposed by computational means. In other words, uh, integrating the cyber model with the physical model. Let's say you've got a small molecule and a protein, and you're able to track them. You have physical models of them. You're able to track them in space, which you can do using just a simple video camera if you have markers on these objects, so you know their X, Y, and Z and their orientations. And since these models have been printed from a computer model, you have the computer model. So these physical models become interface to a computation. So if I'm moving one molecule vis-a-vis -vis the other one, I can use, let's say, our Autodoc force field and compute what the energetics of that interaction is. So you can use it kind of as a, a what-if type of exploration. The way we've been doing it is what I would call magic mirror mode. Uh, you've got a web, you've got a webcam on a screen, and you're you're looking into the screen, and you're seeing a video of yourself, like you are in a mirror, and you see yourself manipulating these models. The model, if you look down at the physical model, all you see is the physical model. If you look in the mirror, you see the augmented model. Yeah, people have to check this out either on the videos or the the images from papers or online. It's just so fascinating to see you hold what would be a physical model, but it looks like a computer image that kind of moves in, in real time. It's yeah, really cool. yeah, and you know, it, there's nothing costly about the, the technology itself. Uh, computational research is unique in the, uh, in the sense that our equipment continues to get better and cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So it's amazing, you know, what the evolution of computational technology is and has been. Now, a big part of Professor Olson's work has been focused on the educational applications of augmented reality. His group has had grants from the NSF and the Department of Education, where they've developed exciting AR prototypes for teaching. I'll show you a model. Let's see, I have some models here. I always carry models with me. Yeah. Do you know this model? From out of nowhere, Arthur pulls out a 3D printed model of virus particles in a plastic container, and this can be shaken to demonstrate the virus self-assembly. There's a cool video online showing this, which will be linked to in the show notes. So we coupled that with an iPad interface so that if you shake it in front of the iPad, it can track the actual shaking. You know, the shaking is analogous to temperature in the assembly process. So if you can track that, you can basically show it as a temperature. So when a student is shaking it, they can see what the temperature is the reactions that I get from three-year-olds all the way to 90-year-olds is, you know, disbelief about self-assembly. How, how is it that you can shake something and it'll come together? You know, it seems counterintuitive, but there it is. We had another one. Do you know what, uh, what do they call hex bugs? You know what a hex bug is? Hex bug, I don't think so. They're little, they're toys. It's basically a cell phone vibrator in a little body that looks like a like a bug with legs. Oh, I have seen those. Yeah, yeah, and they and they like, kind of move around yeah. in a random in a random way. So another one of the uh, kind of lessons that 
that we designed was had to do with rates of reaction and catalysis. Um, and we had a bunch of hex bugs with little markers on them so that when you're looking through an iPad, you see two chemical entities moving around randomly until they get close enough. And then with magnets, the two bugs lock together and then it changes to the product. Having them try to design environments that favor a reaction or disfavor a reaction. So aside from the educational side, going forward, snapshot, look into the future, where else do you see the real meaningful applications for VR in science and technology? Yeah, future is a hard thing to predict. So not all technologies are great for all things. For instance, do you want to be inside of a molecule while you're looking at it or not? Well, I did that experiment back in the late 80s. You know, if you just want to see something in 3D, well, you can see it on your screen. You don't need to be in the middle of it. Um, the first thing people asked for was a chair. They didn't want to wander around the molecule. They wanted to sit down and look at it. Uh, and the second thing was that they didn't want to be inside the molecule. They pushed the molecule out so it was in front of them. Because uh, inside a molecule, it can be a very confusing environment. You know, I think of, of looking at a molecule, something like a watchmaker looking at a watch. You don't want to be inside the watch at the level of the gears. You want to see how things fit together. You want the context in a way that you can comprehend it. So that kind of VR for that task, I don't think is suitable. On the other hand, it may be interesting if you have a whole molecular environment of a cell and you want to wander around, swim around in it, that might be interesting. From a computational point of view, the computer can do things much faster than we can do it. So being in something, visualizing it is more of a way of getting results back into your head in, in some sense. So the same thing could be true in VR and AR environments. I'm interested in seeing what kinds of things we can do with it. Yeah, I know it's very context-specific, but I'm just always rolling around in my head what I think is going to be the biggest thing for humanity. Is it going to be on the side of diagnostics? Is it kind of, you know, modeling for construction and architecture and, or maybe oh, people, communication? Oh, yeah. yeah. I went to uh, SIGGRAPH, which is a computer graphics conference uh, a year or so ago, and they had a, a demo, which was a collaborative room. It happened to be architecture. You know, so there was six or so people sitting around a table. There was no table there, but they all had headsets on, and there was a table in the middle that had a model of a city, and they were all looking at the same thing because everybody can look at the same thing from different angles, you know. And if they wanted to in this city, they could point to some place and be there and see what the rest of the city looked like from that perspective. It may be that, that not just structure, but informatic visualization of matching genomes and expression for various cells and, and so forth could be uh, enhanced through VR or AR. I think, as you said, uh, these are very domain-specific issues. How do we use the same VR system to look at a movie as you would to look at a, a tomogram? The uses are as broad as you'd like to think, I guess. Yeah, I think it's amazing, and I think when people see this information and it continues to gather speed, I think other industries will mm -hmm. will catch on and things will develop further. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, when you're outside of the lab, do you also engage in VR? So are you walking around at home <laughs> with your headset on? No way. <laughs> no. Actually, the New York Times does have kind of a VR 
section now, and they distributed these uh, Google Cardboard things. Uh, so I've tried one of those. You know, I don't find it to be a great experience. In fact, you know, I've tried a, a lot of the consumer VR things now. And the, the one problem with VR that I find is that for most things, it's very isolating. You're in your own world, and you totally lose touch of what's around you. Being in a VR environment, I think also you're you're kind of a slave to the technology. You know, if the frame rates or something is not right, uh, it can be sickening, literally. And so you're really isolating yourself and putting yourself into a very electronically dominated environment uh, as opposed to augmenting your own environment. I have to agree. We're very social creatures, aren't we? And I think the social media side has actually made things very isolationist for a lot of people. So this yeah. might just feed yeah. into that. Exactly. And and that's why, you know, there's so much effort, and I think it's maybe misdirected, <laughs> frankly, but uh, in creating these avatars and so forth, you know, as proxies for the real people that you're interacting with. I don't know. I, I could be wrong, but <laughs> give me reality. <laughs> Final question. So if you could give just one pearl of wisdom to anybody, <laughs> could be a scientist, maybe not a scientist, and this could be in the realm of work, uh, career progression, relationships, self-improvement, life as a human, what do you think it would be <laughs> and why? Uh, I don't like to give advice. Um, I guess if I would give anybody advice, I'd say try as often as you can to put yourself in somebody else's shoes to see how they view the world and you know you may not agree with them but you you may in fact see them in a different light so that's just a general general philosophy <laughs> such fantastic advice for any situation in life we all carry around our own biases but if that person across from you can use logic and reason to put forward an argument that might be completely opposite to your own then they should still at least be heard and their points considered. So huge thanks to Arthur Alton for the discussion. In the show notes, we'll have links to his lab website, as well as to some of the videos showing this modeling technology. Check them out. They will blow your mind. As always, thanks to you folks for listening, and we'll speak soon. Ciao.